So we're on the road right now to the highest mountain in Australia, Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, if you're not from Australia, uh, so we're going to hike almost to the summit. Maybe to the summit, but realistically with the constraints of time today, we might only get to uh, about an hour from the summit. Um, now, if you're not from Australia, you might think that's pretty extreme, uh, a pretty extreme mission to go and hike the highest mountain simply to do a, a day photo shoot, um, especially given the fact that we haven't even brought any food with us, we just brought water. Um, water and the coffee. Water and coffee is picked up. But for those who don't know, Australia's highest mountain is not anywhere near as dramatic as... I just looked it up, it's like it's just over 2200 meters. Okay, it's higher than I thought. I thought it was less than 2000. To be so fair though, I think that like from... It's not very... Um, it's not a. It's not an extreme peak because I mean, I yeah. think, I think we're, where we're currently driving on what is almost flat, flat country is, you know... I think we're already about halfway up. Yeah, so we're driving through the Great Dividing Range, which is Australia, which is a very impressive range that goes from Queensland through to Victoria, uh, which is most of the east coast of Australia, which is a very long way. The reason called the Great Dividing Range, like I, we were talking earlier about how the boring the driving experiences on the Great Dividing Range when you're in the south of Queensland. But uh, I find this particular stretch in southern New South Wales and northern Victoria absolutely gorgeous. Mm, um, absolutely. But it's interesting that, you know, you can say that and that's just... Uh, the distance between those two points is, uh, yeah, pretty incredible. Um, so, as incredible as the length and kind of uh, difference of biome and terrain that can occur in the Great Dividing Range, the fact that the range itself is so extensive means that Kosciuszko doesn't stand out very much. Yeah. <laughs> By virtue of being a you know, mountain just over 2,000 metres that's surrounded by... Mountains of 2,000 metres. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's like... Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna go up that, and the reason we're doing this, the reason we're going up a mountain today, is to do some photography that we'll be releasing uh, in the magazine and on socials for our upcoming issue that's kicking off the year, and we'll define the theme for the entire year, which is the Grail Quest. The Grail Quest. So we finished up last year, which we began with the theme, the journey up. And we're kind of taking inspiration a lot from the narrative of the Exodus there. Um, and so the themes of the issues that we um, explored and the classic works we picked to explore those themes, we always had in mind this mythic structure. How does this play into what you could generically call something like the hero's journey? But I'm not a big Joseph Campbell fan, so I'm going to stick with the idea of the journey up or the Exodus. Like, Because the Exodus means the way out. And journey up and way out can be a similar... Um, notion mm, which mm. is that you're not starting in the best of places so you better move um, so we're carrying that theme onto this new year and starting a new theme as well um, and that is the theme of the quest for the grail which is a stand-in for kind of uh, peace for wholeness for completion uh, and so this is the stage that our project is is that as a journey, as we're trying to solidify and consolidate and make this project a, a unified, uh, structured thing. Yeah. And it's also the, the nature of the works we're going to be looking at. We're going to be talking about so a lot of Arthurian stuff over the course of this year. Um, and so we've been having a conversation as we've been driving. Uh, and Tom, who's our resident 
uh, main, main photographer and uh, coming on to manage some of the socials and stuff this year uh, on, a, on a more uh, regular basis. He, you, you might hear indistinctly every now and again, uh, has, has provided his lapel mic so that we can actually uh, capture a bit of this discussion. But uh, we have been talking about a quest that the modern person is kind of unique. Uh, not unique in the fact that they have this quest, but unique in the way in which they've begun to carry it out over the past, let's say, 100 years or even more recently. Mm. Um, and Levi's brought a lot of insights onto, uh, in regards to the genetic and archaeological and linguistic kind of background and uh, of this. And what we're talking about, what we have been talking about is this desire for everybody to find the, the history or the tradition or even, let's say, the mythology of where they are, where they have come from and where they belong. Um, I think this is quite apparently always the case in history, right? I think most movements that stand out, uh, whether you're talking about the kind of early uprisings within the kind of socialist and communist movements in like the 1840s, mm. whether you're talking about the 1960s youth rebellions, whether you're talking about the French Revolution and the American Revolution, uh, the English Civil War, like any movement that really has left a mark and we remember for being impactful and spilling out, let's say, into kind of geopolitical upheaval tends to begin in somebody trying to either redefine or, or reinterpret or understand anew the story that they may no longer have a strong association with. Would you say that's fairly, like, fairly accurate? Yeah, I think so. And yeah, so as we've been talking about it, we've been talking about it especially, um, you know, Sam is of uh, Australian of convict and settler background, yep. mostly. Convict on my, my father. So my surname, Wilmot, uh, back, back, back way in the day, we were settlers, we were Normans. So we first settled the, the swampy parts of France and then we, you know, raided England and settled there. But in my more recent history, the reason I'm in Australia is because Wilmots were sent here as convicts for being uh, thieves. Yes. Um, whereas on my mum's side, it's uh, more recent. It goes back to my grandparents, uh, who, whose own parents were settlers after the war, the Second World War. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, two of the biggest settlement periods in Australian history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. So that's that's my own. And I mean, we might bring this up a bit later, but when I tell people my heritage, I often mostly focus on the fact that I'm a convict. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So which is probably relevant to what we'll talk about later. Yeah. But if I tell people I'm a Wilmot, I'm like, yeah, Wilmot's a convict. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I'm, you know, uh, I was raised with a, with a very uh, nomadic childhood, but uh, as of right now, I would define myself as an Australian, with as a first generation. You're also a citizen now. I'm a citizen of Australia. Yeah. I've taken, taken, sworn my oath to the Australian Constitution, and I think, I think one of the parts of the oath is is actually the the value. Uh, you swear partially to the value of mateship in modern Australian society, yeah. which is a. Uh, you know, that's a part of Australian culture, yeah. though, I would say. I actually had an opportunity this week um, to introduce that concept to uh, an Iranian gentleman uh, who has moved to Australia quite recently, and his wife is a doctor, and so she and she speaks English, and she's been working in hospitals, regional hospitals. 
Uh, but he speaks a very limited amount of English at the moment. And I was spending time with him this week trying to help him find a bit of work in town because it's very hard when you have a language barrier like that in a town with a population of 6,000. Um, but one of the things I tried to introduce him to, I, I, I tried to define the word mate to him. Mm. And because he said, oh, thank you so much for you know helping. Um, it's very kind of you. And I said, well, this is part of what it means to be Australian. This is what part of what we're sort of enculturated with is mateship. Yeah, um, just being a mate, exactly. Yeah. And so part of that was me trying to speak to him in English and then part of it was me using Google Translate to try and, you know, get that concept across. But um, but I said, yeah, at the best of times, that's what we're like. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so as, as I was saying, I'm, I'm a first-generation immigrant. My parents are of Dutch origin and I'm also still a Dutch citizen. And, you know, that's, that's also, a, let's say, a strong part of my culture, let's say. Yeah. Um, but we were talking, I think this, this started in... in uh, in a conversation where I was like, uh, I brought up the study of, um, let's say, the deep origins of populations in terms of proto-populations. Yeah. Um, if we wanted to put this in maybe a more mythic or poetic phrase, we might say like the genesis of the nations, you know what I mean? Exactly. And, um, you know, for example, the most, the most famous example for, you know, a Western audience, I would say, is the, are the Indo-Europeans. Um, who, you know, the Indo-Europeans uh, famously uh, was first discovered as a language family, um, you know, which includes all of the Germanic language, so Eng English, German, Dutch, whatever, uh, all of the Romance languages, so all of the, the French, um, Latin-descended languages, all of the yeah, Greek language, uh, but also Sanskrit and Iranian, um, Farsi. Uh, these are all Indo-European languages and they are associated with a, a proto-population, the Indo-Europeans, um, who modern evidence has, has come to, you know, make clearer that their exact identity and, you know, these are still in the air, it's still a debated subject, but uh, there's a, a general consensus at this point that uh, they were uh, people who lived uh, in the in the Caspian Pontic steppe so uh, above the Black Sea and a lot of what is now known as Ukraine and along the Volga Ural River and they were the first one of the first peoples to domesticate horses which allowed them to take over much of the steppe territory and in like in infiltrate into uh, much of you know the Indo-European uh, area, which is a huge area. Like, let's not forget, we're talking about a thing that stretches from like, you know, the shores of the English Channel, possibly. Well, yeah, within some context. I mean, Greek settlement went as far as you know, Tarsus. You have Indo-European groups in in areas around that as well, and that always also goes to yeah, the north of north of modern day India, Pakistan. Exactly. You brought this up, and I think we'd, I'd like to cover this again because it's it's not just interesting, but it is germane to what we got onto. Mm. Going back to the context of the Grail Quest and finding identity, right? Yeah. Um, so we we have we have been talking about maybe personal aspects to history, population, and story. Mm. Um, but to understand, let's say, so one of the modern methods for finding your story is the DNA test or your an, an ancestry website of some kind. 
that's a lot of the ways in which people begin their explorations. They go online, they send a DNA sample off, they find out uh, and the, the kind of scientific um, the scientific identity that they have. Yeah. In terms of their genetic composition, right? And then they and then they can extrapolate from there. But let's I want you to explain if possible. So where does this where does this all begin? So you've introduced the Indo-Europeans and uh, you've mentioned that today we're able to identify the patterns of their movement. What began as a study of comparative linguistics, so people noticing that Sanskrit, for example, had its similarities to, let's say, Latin and Greek. Uh, and this was a long, long time ago now. Mm. Um, but since then, we've been able to, you know, through archaeology and then much, uh, maybe the most recently is the, through genetic studies. Yeah, those those major studies came out in 2015. Yes, okay, so, so we've now, new, let's we say. have now kind of been able to chase down Indo-Europeans from just, oh, okay, these languages share a basic structure, there must have been some sort of underlying mother tongue to, okay, there's archaeological similarities across different areas, we can see the transmission of, of culture through the archaeological record, in some cases, not in many, but we can see it a little bit. In some cases, there are outliers we want to find the connection we can't, as you explained before. Yeah. Until now, until like let's say the past ten years or or so, when the genetic, uh, genetic, uh, scientific capacity in the field of genetics has now gotten to the point where we can find the connections on a on a biological basis, not just on a linguistical, material, cultural basis that archaeology and comparative linguistics can provide. Mm. So, so would you care to explain to us sort of what we understand about the movements of peoples, the patterns of settlements uh, and identity as they have transpired, as far as we can tell, to the best of our ability through comparative study, how this occurred. Sure. I'll start in this way. The defining feature of the Indo-European culture that we identified, and this was identified very early on in, in just in the fact of the language, is the Indo-European taming of the horse. That is sort of what we understand as sort of the the root of Indo-European culture. Um, And you can tell that just from the language, the fact that the word for reins, as in that that which you use to control the horse on horseback, the the reins, um, the the root of that word is the same in a language such as Old Irish and Greek, or what we can tell in Hittite. Like, the, these okay. words are old and have clearly been transmitted. Okay, so we're looking at, um, we're looking at like, so ancient Greek, that word would be present, let's say, in the day of your, your golden age of Athens. Exactly. Right, so sorry, old Irish, so Celtic tribes who, ne- who for a long time wouldn't necessarily have transmitted that in a written medium. Sure. And then the Hittites, who were one of the most ancient Bronze Age civilizations. Indeed, the, the, I mean, they're the oldest source of writing from an Indo-European language that we have, and they're right. one of the oldest p- forms of writing outside of, you know, Cuneiform. Akkadian, yeah. Cuneiform, exactly. Right. So you're saying that the word for reigns has the same root in all three languages, and we're talking about an area that goes from, like, uh, the near near Middle East through to the British Isles. Indeed. Okay. Or, or similarly, um, one of my favorite ones was that, uh, favorite discoveries, which I discovered only recently in reading um, the book, uh, I'll just put it out there uh, as, a, as a recommendation to people who are very interested in this, is um, Calvert Watkins wrote the book How to Kill a Dragon, a study of Indo-European mythopoetics. And he points out... Sick for, title. Sick title, man. 
Um, the and the idea being that you know this the one of the fundamental myths of that that not only is there a shared language among Indo-European cultures, but there's a shared myth that they had shared beliefs, and that these have also been you know adapted and changed across time. But there's a fundamental core to it that we can identify as Indo-European religion and culture. Uh, and one of his uh, observations is also that the word for king in a number of languages, in Old Sanskrit, again, in Hittite, and pointed out a potential relation to Latin and maybe even an Old Germanic word, which has since dropped out of use, is that the word for king, or just a general term for ruler, was the same as a charioteer, the one who holds the reins. Um, right. So this has, one. like, both, I guess, a, a symbolic and a literal understanding, right? As you mentioned, mm. the one who holds the reins... Let's say metaphorically or symbolically, you can see that as the one who guides the ship, the guides the kingdom, you know. Um, but then also from a status and material culture point of view, um, chariots are an elite unit yes. in the ancient world, right? You don't, you're not a charioteer unless you're from a very high station of nobility. It's sort of, it's sort of like an ultimate technology in the ancient world. Oh yeah, I mean, it changed warfare. Um, and I suppose the other thing with chariots is that again, kind of blurring the line again between material culture and symbolism is that you can't a chariot is a forward unit yes you can't station a chariot behind an infantry unit because the infantry will get in the way mm, yeah so when, you, when you're talking about the idea of a king it is really a very powerful way to describe a king in, within a very ancient context mm. because not only is the material status aspect very strong but then the poetic aspect of the first in battle um, the the one guiding and, and striking, right? Yes. So we have chariot as the root word for king in another wide disparity of uh, like yeah, widespread no, of I will I will actually caveat this because I'm all of a sudden slipping. I can't remember if it was... I know it becomes charioteer in, in later forms of many of these languages. It might have, in origin, been simply horse rider, horseman, mm -hmm. simply because... I'm not, I don't think the Indo-Europeans as uh, people had invented chariots. That was a later innovation after they'd be settled. Okay. I'm but gonna, it would come in, in some language to have the chariot here. Yes, I'm, I'm certain on that. Yeah. Um, I just want to make sure that I'm not throwing out there that I think the Indo-Europeans had chariots because yep. Yep. that might be a statement too far. In fact, I'm almost certain that that isn't the case. Yeah, um, okay. So, so what we're hearing is that the word for rain and then the word for horseman, which later becomes the word for chariot here and king, uh, is shared across various language groups that all had a, the same origin, um, but later became se separate and distinct language groups and cultures. Mm. So you're saying that gives us an insight into the culture, uh, m both materially and maybe symbolically, of the Proto-Indo-European peoples. Yes. So all these words of horsemanship have their origin in the same language across the Indeed, which makes... What does that tell us? Well, I mean, first of all, it tells us... It's, it's kind of, it's, it would be kind of strange for that to happen if said proto-population didn't have horses. Yeah, okay. And the fact that they play such a central role in, in metaphorical uses and extended uses as well tells us that not only did they have horses, horses were important to them. Yes. And um, there's there's decent evidence that they were among... And again, this is sort of from a, from an archaeological and skeletal perspective. If you, if you look at what we now have now identified as graves of Indo-European peoples, um, they bear um, the very typical skeletal deformities and maladies of people who have spent long days in saddles or not necessarily saddles but on horseback right they there's a there's a very you know clear maladies of the hips of the thighs of such that will uh, lower back as well nice. that arise so what we 
Well, so what we've seen is that originally there's this supposition from linguists that this people group uh, must have had uh, strong connections to horsemanship. Mm. Um, and that's later confirmed by archaeological evidence when we find remains that show that they had the deformities associated with uh, life, life in the saddle. Exactly. Um, what else have linguists in uh, times past drawn from the language that we've now come to better understand as well as this horsemanship aspect? Yes, well, here's, here's another uh, interesting one as well. So people, people were um, for a long time struggling to identify the Indo-Europeans. Uh, let's, let's start with that because we knew there was this, there was this family of languages. It's, um, you know, at a, it's, a, at a, it's a very, uh, simply to identify the similarity between languages such as, you know, Germanic, Greek, Latin, and then later Sanskrit um, is of, you know, almost, it's, very, it's relatively simple. It's relatively easy to see such a similarity. Um, but we didn't know who the Indo-Europeans were, so we were looking at archaeological cultures, you know, trying to see, all right, we have these, we have a, a, a people who we named the corded ware culture because their, their pottery is decorated with a corded pattern. Um, they're present mostly in, I think, from what I understand, uh, I'm not an expert in the field, I'm just familiar with the material. Uh, what we now identify as, you know, Germanic territory, so Germany, um, the Czech Republic, places like that, and also West Slavia, Poland, etc. They were identified here as um, a potential Indo-European population, uh, but then also we identified perhaps the, this Yamnaya culture, this steppe horse-riding people, um, and we weren't able to really see um, neither of these groups individually covered, let's say, the required territory to um, to explain the the full pattern of Indo-European language diffusion. Yep, but. Um, and there wasn't enough evidence to suggest that these were in some way the same group. Like their material culture, their archaeological cultures were very different. And, um, and by archaeological culture, we usually get that from burial practice. In, in this situation, we have no, because the, as we discovered later, or, or not even as we discovered later, because the Yamnaya were a horse riding people, they don't leave many physical remains right. outside of burials. Yeah, so burial yeah. is the main is the main, is the main where we find. And so when we talk about archaeological culture, we're talking about the types of pots that were left in burials or, you know, just in general grave goods. I don't know. And yeah, I'm not, yep. the, the position in which they're buried, things like that. Yeah, structures in which they're buried. Structures in which they're buried, absolutely. Are there shaft graves? Are they, you know, mounds? Yep. Kurgans, whatever. Um, and there was, a, there was a suggestion put forward that perhaps the Cordedware and the Yamnaya are the same people. And that the Yamnaya, or either that the corded ware people came first and they discovered horses, they discovered the power of horse riding and spread further east, or that they were in fact the Yamnaya who had uh, originated above the Black Sea in what is now Ukraine and that they'd come and settled down. We weren't able to tell. So we're talking about a very long, like as you were saying, a really wide area because one group we're looking at is you've identified in that Czech, Polish, North German area. Yes. Now, the group you mentioned earlier was on that pinch point between China, Mongolia, and Russia? Yes, the Altai Mountains. Okay, yes. so that's a, that's a huge geographic training. You're saying that neither group had a territory large enough 
to necessarily account for transmission. Well, I mean, and, and we have Yamnaya graves above the, the Ukraine as well and okay. such. Yes. Yeah. So we're not just we're not just identifying. That's that's sort of the furthest ex- the furthest reach of the Yamnaya yeah. that we have. But there's not a direct uh, overlap in the territory in which we find the corded wig remains. No, no, remains. not at all. Okay. There's there's um, and there, there were some who suggested that this idea that the Yamnaya might settle down and become the corded ware, but there was no evidence of it. Anyone who claims would have, would have claimed to say, oh, this was. Um, People, people in the modern scholarship have often said, oh, but I already said that beforehand, and then the, we already knew this, and it's like the, the genetics just confirmed it for us, which I will, to, to, spoil, to spoil the narrative a little bit, genetic evidence has since proven that indeed the corded ware are Yamnaya-descended settlers. Yeah. Um, there wasn't enough evidence to make this claim, however. So anyone who claims they, they already knew this and simply were proved so, proved correct by the genetic evidence, are simply admitting that they made Retro the claim without them, yeah. evidence yeah. Yeah. because there was no, no strong connection established prior. Um, but there is this... There was, there was an inkling because... So, as I mentioned, this, this, this language family, which shows great consistency, words for horsemanship are, uh, between many of the, of the descendant languages of Indo-European remain the same. Words for... Um, Pastoral animals, sheep, cows, those are very similar. Most words to do with warfare and weapons are very similar. They, these are... So they share roots. They share roots, exactly. Yeah. Words which differ dramatically, which seem to have been picked up from other languages near where they settled, which, for example, in Sanskrit seem to have come from native Dravidic or other Indian languages, or um, in... Germanic languages seem to have come from this pre-existing Neolithic hunter-gatherer people who were already there. Um, because it should be made clear, for example, for just to make very clear, while we identify the Indo-Europeans as, let's say, the origin population of what we now consider the Indic Indo-Europeans, let's say, from yep. India to Europe, north of India to, to Western Europe, yep. these were not the first people to occupy these lands. No. They came into already occupied territory. Um, but the words which seem to have been borrowed from existing languages are mostly domestic terms, yep. things to do with pottery or cooking, in similar concept, or anything to do with agriculture, words for crops, right. words for gathering. So before you, you jump to a surmise, or the, his, the, the historical things that people supposed hmm. about what that difference means, um, so what we're looking at is rain, king, charioteer, sword, um, Cow, sheep. Warfare, cow, sheep. These are words that, across the board, have a clear Indo-European origin. Yes. It's shared from old Ireland through the Mediterranean and Western Europe to the north of India. Yep. But words for grain, pots, cooking terms, agriculture, and domestic words like this, those seem to almost exclusively come from the languages that were spoken before Indo-European that we now no longer have much knowledge about. Yes, indeed. So they're def- different across. So if you were to say, let's say I was to go back a few thousand years of travel from Northern India to Old Ireland, mm. right, I want to have a conversation with another gentleman, I would get on pretty well if I knew whatever reconstruction proto Indo-European we've come to today, what if I were to try and talk to him about riding my horse around 
showing throwing a javelin at someone. But if I asked him how to cook a stew, he would there would be a lot of difficulty with me. Indeed, trying if, to have that conversation. If you asked him which berries were safe to eat, he might struggle to tell you as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because the language that he'd be using would have been changed by an existing set of population that Proto-Indo-European has borrowed from to express those ideas. Yes. Or those concepts. Those objects. Indeed. Okay. And so, and you know, the surmise of this idea is well, all right. These, these. So then we have an idea. All right. The Indo-Europeans had a strong culture and had you know clearly defined words and meanings for horsemanship and such terms, but not for agriculture and domestic terms. Now, agriculture is easily explained. If you're a pastoral, a herding culture, you won't have words for agricultural terms. You're going to know what a plough is because you don't. You don't have it anyway. Exactly. You won't know what the local terms for your grains are because you don't have them. Domestic terms are slightly different. It implies that... And this is what this is what the surmise was from some you know forward-thinking linguists was this was the idea all right you have because um, surely yeah okay so surely the problem here is surely the Indo-European peoples who rode horse around still had pots and, and, exactly. and cooking ware and and meals right so exactly why would those words have changed across this territory that they spread through indeed indeed and here's the idea we don't know we didn't know for a long time exactly how the Indo-Europeans migrated. So we know kind of, well, it, it, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's still disputed where they come from, but, the, you know, this Pontic Caspian steppe uh, above the Black Sea. And we didn't know uh, what kind of form this took. Were these, um, you know, raiding parties? Were they just pop- movement of populations as, I don't know, the population grew? Um, it's part of the advantage that horse that the taming of the horse brings is that as a hunter-gatherer people, as, um, you know, who lived, uh, as the name implies, from hunting wildlife and gathering crops yep. readily available in nature, the most, um, your most valuable places are, are river valleys, by far. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll notice this everywhere. River basins are extremely popular. Um, and this is the idea that the hunter-gatherers of the region of, let's say, what we now call the Volga-Ural region for the Volga River, which runs above the Black Sea, were, um, they lived mostly in the river valleys. The moment you tame the horse, here's the thing, a horse can graze on open pasture yep. and can un- sort of, it unlocks this entire, well, the entire stepland becomes a source of energy. So it was previously not suitable to hunter-gatherer societies because it's too vast an area to traverse by foot. It's not as reliable for uh, hunting and finding ready sources of food when compared to a riverbed. So why would you settle there? Exactly. Whereas if you have um, horses, sheep, cattle, any form of grazing animal, they will, you know, graze and eat all the grass and you'll be able to, I know, have milk from them, make cheese from that milk, slaughter them for meats, as you know, as some Mongols were wont to do, as yep. we know from Mongolic culture, that is, but also which yep. a supposition and, and you can drink their blood. just makes the same uh, claim to the Scythians, exactly, who are uh, ancient nomadic horse people that are on the steppe. Mm. They you know eat horse meat, they drink horse milk. I won't go into any more facts because they get a little bit weirder, and <laughs> not just to do with blood drinking, but we'll leave it at that. Read yeah. book, book four of her on the Scythians. But um, exactly, and so it, it's in a, you know, from a let's say a broad strokes historical perspective, 
it, it unlocks a source of energy which has not been uh, tapped into before. Um, and so the idea would be, all right, with this, you can now support a larger population or mobile population. You're going to move into more space. And it'll just be a natural growth of, you know, a pop an entire population group which moves. It was a potential uh, explanation. But going back to the linguistic evidence of these domestic and uh, domestic cooking terms and agricultural terms being of non-Indo-European origin much of the time, um, there was a suggestion that perhaps the migration was mostly male-mediated, which is to say it was mostly men from Indo-European uh, tribes, population groups, going out on raiding parties um, and dispossessing the uh, existing populations of, let's say, the European territories of um, their... Uh, how should I phrase this politely? You know what, I'm not going to bother phrasing it politely because they weren't <laughs> no. very polite in their yeah. actions. Let's not, uh, let's not try and cover up. Exactly, let's not, let's not cover up. There's no need to beat around the bush. They killed the men, stole the women, and moved into their land. And this, A tale as old as time, you might say. A tale as old as time, indeed. As, as you mentioned, Sam, this is like the, the way that the first history which we identify, that, is, that being Herodotus's yeah. histories, opens, it opens with a tale of wife-stealing. Yeah, so I think um, this is interesting. Um, so what what we've what we've di discovered, right? So the linguist put forward this first, and it's later, right? It has been backed up. It has been backed up. Yeah, well. So we have this idea that the nomadic peoples. The reason we see words that are shared for horsemanship, livestock, and warfare, but not for domestic and agricultural terms, is because these people move in, uh, and the the men your, uh, what would have been the elites, because being the ones who possess the weapons and the horses, mm. right, it's very hard to challenge that kind of status. Um, so that's what I mean by elites, not that they were, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, they were the, the better people in any other respect. No, indeed. What I mean by elites is materially, uh, in terms of the capacity to, to control others, they had that station in a social context. Those they would keep those words of the relating to their elite status, but in terms of the domestic domestic context, context they would adopt the words of their new wives. Exactly, because it's it's because in a, in a way that isn't meant to be sexist, but simply historically accurate, the domestic was the sphere of the feminine at this time. Yeah, right. So, um, um, or at least, I mean. Even if it was the case that in these hunting exercises, domestic was a shared space for men and women, mm. uh, those men are now dead because <laughs> yeah. these roaming bands of Proto-Indo-Europeans have come in. Angry young men on horseback. And they have, whether that domestic space was shared between men and women or not in the Neolithic hunter-gatherer or Dravidic societies in different parts of the Indo-European world, that is not going to be the case when horsemen come in and kill those men. Indeed. Whether they share that space or not, yeah. Yes, indeed, Sam. A, a very good correction. And I wouldn't call it a correction. It's, I think, no, yeah, it's like an, idea. an elaboration. Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. No, very, very well explained. Um, and I would say this as well. that, um, And as, as I mentioned, this has been since backed up by genetic evidence in that um, for the, uh, the, the human genome uh, tracks, you know, genetic ancestry very, very clearly. It's generally quite 
it's not a simple task, but it's a very doable task since the decoding of the human genome to uh, understand one's ancestry in light of it. Um, but specifically, you can uh, look specifically at genetic evidence from the Y chromosome in uh, male populations, and the Y chromosome will always be passed down paternally from, from male to male, yep. um, given it is a Y chromosome. Yep. Um, by, virtue, yeah. by virtue of that. And similarly, um, the mitochondrial DNA, however, of an individual is always inherited from their mother, whether they're ma male or female, they'll always yep. inherit their mitochondrial DNA from their mother. And so you can track separately paternal and maternal lineages in this way. Yep. And if you look at the paternal lineage of most Indo-European um, peoples to this day, so you know, if the person listening to this will be from any form of you know, Indo-European background, likely your paternal lineage, lineage tra traces back to um, an Indo-European an Indo horseman yep. coming in um, to this, uh, to, uh, an Indo-European horseman, let's just say that. Yeah. Whereas it's a far more uh, mixed maternal lineage between Indo-European heritage, but also what we term Neolithic hunter-gatherer. So the pre-existing population. So this is relatively clear genetic evidence of, um, you know, male Indo-Europeans coming in and taking Neolithic hunter-gatherer wives. So this was this was hinted at by the linguistic reality, and has since been elaborated on and eventually kind of confirmed by first yeah. archaeological hints, and now made even more clear. And uh, let's say, in terms of how we define things by scientific veracity confirmed in the genetic genetic material we have certainly and, and there's there's one more point that I want to I want to hit on here which is that there is actually a very clear modern parallel there's all that yeah actually modern is the appropriate term in this case which is if you look at the settler history of Latin America you mm. find a very similar phenomenon of almost a, almost an exact parallel in what we in the set uh, settling colonialism of, of Latin America, in that um, Latin American Spanish is mostly, you know, Spanish as spoken by the largely men who were sensed into this area. Yep. It was mostly, again, male-mediated migration. Yep. Um, what, native, um, what native South American words have made it into Latin American Spanish are largely terms for local crops, what we right. might think of as agricultural terms, and domestic terms. Right, so the same pattern occurred... The same pattern occurs linguistically. 500 years ago. Exactly. And ongoing through Indeed. And the Spanish you, settlement of Latin America. If you America. look at the genetic evidence, again, most of the Y-chromosomal DNA in Latin America these days is of Spanish ancestry. The mitochondrial ancestry is mostly Native American, Native South American. Right. So... It, and it plays itself out both in the genetic and in the um, linguistic sphere in almost exact parallel. And so what was interesting, as we were talking about a little earlier, is that if we look at foundation myths, um, and even when those foundation myths move from a mythic sphere into what we might call the more, uh, like the discipline of history, mm. um, you know, so, so we have... Um, I'd say there's, there's a few um, well-known stories, right, of, of wife-stealing or, or of, uh, you know, 
mass kidnappings of women uh, in in the ancient world, and they're strangely tied to quite often foundational myths for cities or civilizations. Yes. And so uh, we brought up that Herodotus, who wrote the first history as we as we see it today, like he wrote the first history in, in Western literature, mm. right? Not maybe the first history in Indo-European literature, um, but but maybe like in terms of how we understand history today. Yes. What he was trying to do was differentiate between myth, which has a religious and ritual aspect, um, and a story of a people, right? Yes. So yes. Herodotus' history is not used as a liturgical textbook by any temple in the ancient world. That's the difference. So while we might look at Herodotus today and say, well, some of that stuff is clearly made up, or clearly has a more magical, mythical, or kind of God-influenced reality than we would accept as history today, the difference is, unlike, let's say, a text describing the feats of Hercules, Herodotus' text is not being used in ritual contexts, um, whereas what would, uh, whereas um, a, a piece of more explicitly mythic content, uh, part of its mythic character would be that it's being used for the worship of that god or for the civic festivals that that town has. Herodotus is not being used in that way. Mm. Indeed. Um, so that's why we define it today as sort of history. Yes. Because it's written to be read to understand the people in a way that isn't like, oh, we read this at the city festival every year to understand where our people came from. It's like, no, no, no. And so he starts his thing, which is often defined as like, oh, it's the, it's the history of the Greco-Persian War. It's really bigger than that. <laughs> um, to limit Herodotus to that is kind of like, it's like saying Moby Dick is, uh, is a story about... Ishmael having a fun adventure on the South Seas. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> actually, it's the entire history and science of whaling wrapped in a Shakespearean revenge quest with this tragic mix of kingly Hamlet and Macbeth piloting a damn ship to hell. You know? <laughs> and so, Herodotus' history is like, actually, the history of the entire world as he, as he has been able to encounter it. There's an entire book about the history of Egypt, a lot of book threes about the history of and the culture of Babylon and, and as far as India, right? He has entire histories devoted to uh, the Greek-speaking peoples. Mm. And so he's trying to elaborate uh, within the context of all these worlds colliding when the emperor of Egypt, India, and Persia, right, the kind of eastern half of the world, tries to then expand that domain into the into what is the more western part of the world. Yes. Right, and so that's the reason why he has to tell all the backstories. Um, but in, sometimes you feel like he's more interested in the backstories than he is in the war part of things. <laughs> um, and for good reason, because he's got this medium now to tell that story. But how does he begin this story? Right at the start, book one, first couple of pages you're going to read, is going to be about the kidnappings of various women. Yes. And he's going to tell the story of how men went over, took women, and quite often that would become the founding of of cities, civilizations, and the beginnings of wars. Yes. Um, and he uses that to frame, in fact, his own war. And so it might be a curious detail. Like, why does he feel the need to retell the kidnapping of Io and Europa and Helen of Troy, and then connect that to the, the Greco-Persian War uh, between Darius the Great and the city-states of, of the Peloponnese and etc.? It's a curious, it's a curious thing, and it, I think, and sorry, we look at the Romans too, and, and famously, 
the the story we have of Romulus, right, once he founds Rome, is the way he populates it is by what's known in liter- classical literature as the rape of the Sabine women. Yes. Where he took all his thugs off and they went and carried off a considerable number of, um, of women uh, native to a nearby area. And then that's the foundational story of Rome. Apart from just the whole Romulus kills Remus and the wolf thing, like this is an equally important aspect of the Roman identity. Yes, indeed. Um, and we can see that in the stories of Zeus, right? Zeus famously found a lot of cities and continents, right? I mean, where does Europe get its name? But by the kidnap of Europa. Exactly. Um, And so this is like a, this is a, this is a very clear feature. um, And it's a very interesting feature uh, of, of story that you could say is maybe a, a remembrance of the reality of how settlement occurred in the, in the Indo-European context, which the Greeks are a part of, mm. uh, and the Romans are a part of. And so there's this, there's this underlying part of their mythology which involves how, how women were kidnapped as an explanation for how wars and civilizations were originally, uh, were originally begun. Indeed, indeed. We were just moving through the sequence of uh, historical narratives that are told in the ancient world. Primarily, uh, we were talking about Herodotus and how he opens his history with the account of kidnapping women and how later Livy and other Roman historians pick this up and they're talking about the rape of the Sabine women as a famous episode in the founding of Rome. And an absolutely, uh, you might say, crucial episode um, without which the founding of Rome doesn't happen. Uh, so these are two important parts of the mythology. First of the entire world as Herodotus sees it when he describes the kidnappings of Europa and Io and later Helen of Troy um, and how he contextualized world history through that and then the Roman story beginning with that what we might be able to if you want to be a little bit creative not necessarily fully academic but a little bit creative is in this see maybe a pattern that exists within the Indo-European cultures within their minds perhaps within oral histories of this reality that we now understand from the archaeology from the linguistics and finally from the genetics most recently Mm. which is that these are cultures that began through um, very uh, turbulent action on the part of the peoples who would create the Indo-European identities across um, across the world. Yes. Now, what's interesting is that, as we've mentioned, if we want to be a little bit creative and not too rigorous in, in our, you know, take off our academic cap, purely academic caps for a minute, and just think about it creatively, we can see that these stories maybe get retold in some way through the myths and the histories of the Greeks and Romans and in other places further afield. Um, now, this pattern of telling a story to identify the place of a given people within the world is a fundamental of human behaviour. Yes. We tell stories about our own people and about the people nearest to us to try and account for their place in the world. Um, And so when we look at the Indo-European 
story as we understand it now, um, as much as it might have informed ancient peoples in maybe deep oral memories of how their own cultures were formed, it's interesting that we turn are turning to it now and trying to understand it and contextualize patterns of settlement and how that has continued to play out into the modern eras today. Indeed. And we were connecting this at the, maybe at the beginning of when we started a recorded discussion, but certainly uh, uh, in our previous discussion, we were talking about how it's analogous to the um, popularity of uh, you know, websites or programs such as Ancestry.com and the, especially the modern sort of DNA testing, of, you know, uh, also Ancestry.com, 23andMe, these sorts of programs which, you know, will give you a breakdown of your heritage by sort of genetic, by geographic region from, from your genetics. And the way in which a lot of people use that to inform they don't use it to inform their identity, but they'll take aspects of what resonates with them uh, in, in what they find in a way to sort of inform their identity. Yeah, so you might do an ancestry test and find out that you're, uh, let's say, you know, 2%... Oh, should I do this to him? 2% Croatian. <laughs> Sorry if you listen to this, I'm not going to name you. 2% Croatian, and then you... you decide to adopt that as, a, as an intrinsic, as a core element of your identity. Mm. You make that a core aspect of your identity and you introduce yourselves along those lines to, to others that you have Croat heritage. Now, it's interesting because I'm not saying there's anything bad or good or bad in that. I think it's just a natural human function, right? As you pointed out, we take what we find valuable or interesting in the texture of life around us and we incorporate that, we weave that into our own stories. Indeed. And so ancestry tests like this are kind of just a new medium for us, especially in the modern era, let's say, when we don't have a strong story to pass down or that has been passed down to us. Um, we often don't know much about family history beyond our grandparents, maybe in some cases our great-grandparents. But, I mean, you and I, I mean, I'm saying this as, a, as an Australian citizen, as someone who, on my father's side, uh, comes from convict stock. Yes. And, and we were identifying this sort of particularly with... Now, this is true sort of the world over, but this is particularly true in colonial and settler societies such as Australia, the Americas, etc. Where there's, you know, the people groups from all over have mingled. And this is happening more and more in the modern world, but... It's sort of especially um, a, an especially poignant issue in, in those sorts of spaces. Yeah, and I um, I like to uh, just take a step back, zoom out to where we were a second ago in terms of how we tell stories about ourselves. Mm. Right, we've been kind of at the outset we said we were going to try and connect this to the Grail Quest idea, the, the search for wholeness, the idea that there's something out there that's tangible in the world that I can latch onto that will finish me, that will com complete my story, that will bring restoration where I need it. Yes. Um, and we were looking, just to, just about five, ten minutes ago in our discussion, we brought up 
the stories of uh, the settlement of cultures and cities that the ancients told about themselves, particularly like Livy and Herodotus, right? Yes. Um, and and so those are a, a very uh, those are on the borderline between history and myth, mm. where Herodotus, for example, substitutes Zeus, which is the traditional mythic interpretation of who took Europa and who took Io, for Phoenician and Greek sailors in other contexts, right? Mm. Um, but it, even so, there's the antiquity of the stories he's telling, there's a mythic aspect, right, to the struggle he's descri- describing between Greek and Phoenician city-states. And uh, even though he's kind of substituted Zeus out of those stories, the way he will tell those stories still has God's presence. Now, we'll look at that today and say, okay, Herodotus is telling a story about the kidnapping of women. He's describing it as the foundation for these strifes and these cultures. Um, but we don't agree with that method of storytelling anymore. Right? It doesn't have the details which we think are necessary to be a credible account of history. No, indeed. Now, people have been saying about Herodotus literally from about a generation after he wrote his history. So... I'm not. I'm not being like. I'm, I, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with the idea that our version of telling history is the best. But people have been criticising Herodotus the way he told history since Thucydides. Indeed. So um, read read Thucydides book one. He, he definitely makes some side comments about previous historians. Um, now, what is interesting is you mentioned that there's this interesting middle uh, meeting point between linguistics archaeology and genetic uh, the field of genetic science and that they've each built upon each other so originally the as you mentioned indo-european is a linguistic designation and proto-indo-european is a supposed language to have existed before these other indo-european languages now subsequent to that archaeological uh, science is developed and we begin to identify the material aspects of that reality as well and then let's say most recently we have the, the genetic capability to identify the genetic reality to that mm. as well. Now, what is interesting to me in this case is that linguistics was one of the biggest branches of, let's say, scientific inquiry about 200 years ago. Yes. Now, towards the end of that 19th century into the 20th, archaeology became... And let's say in terms of the humanities, right? Mm. Like, there was still physics going on, there's still chemistry going on. When I say linguistics was one of the largest sciences, I mean in terms of explaining human behavior and human uh, patterns, right, of acting and living. Yes. Right? Linguistics was, was sort of the main way we, we tried to understand that, um, along with a few other disciplines. And then archaeology came along and gave us new insights into that as well. Yes. And then subsequently, genetics has come along and further improve that. Um, so what's interesting to me, I think, is that across about three centuries, we've had three different sciences begin to, um, you could say, continue the work of historians like Herodotus. But we're looking back into the past and we're saying, well, Zeus, I don't know about that. But according to the best inquiry I can make with the science available to me at the time, I will substitute that force for one I do understand. Yes, indeed. Now, well, I'm not trying to say that linguistics, archaeology, and genetics aren't valid and true sciences. <laughs> Definitely not. 
But what I'm saying is they take place in this larger pattern of human storytelling. Yes, So absolutely. Herodotus says, okay, Zeus, not the best explanation of what happened to Europa and Io and Helen of Troy. Um, because, you know, as Plato would later come along and begin in his project, to ascribe to the gods a certain amount of capriciousness and maliciousness uh, begins to open the question as to, well, how is that behavior a feeding of the gods? And as Socrates will say in the Euthyphro, if that's a story that you're hearing about a god, discount it. Because it can't be about a god. Right? Yes. Um, so Herodotus says, well, what can I do right in my own day and age? What kind of inquiry can I make to tell the truest story? And he settles on essentially what we might call like proto-journalism, right? Yeah. <laughs> he travels around, he asks questions, he compares all the accounts, and after asking as many people as he can, he says, well, I heard this from the Egyptian priests, and I heard this from Greek settlers in Egypt. They all give these accounts of the pyramids. I think this one, having been there and seen it for myself, seems the most fitting. And that's a lot of what his, his history does. Um, and so if we flash forward to the field, development of the field of linguistics, development of the field of archaeology, and now to the development of the field of genetics, just as you know, what Herodotus did was so valuable and so um, unique in his time that we've preserved it for about two and a half thousand years and continue to reprint and re retell his histories. I think that what we have begun to do in our understanding of, of where we come from as peoples in these new sciences is part of that same endeavor. I and think so I think too. That's why like, they are all providing us with these beautiful insights into the same project that we classify Herodotus as being part of, which is history. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's also some, some, there's an extent to which, you know, when, when you look at these, you know, stories as a, as a method of, um, you know, for fulfilling one's identity, there's, you know, you get that sense in Herodotus where he's, you know, he's telling the stories of peoples and, um, yeah, like the peoples, like as we might characterize them, ethno-linguistic cultural groups. Yeah. And, you know, when people look to, um, look to their heritage in terms of, you know, yes, an Australian who looks back and thinks, oh, I'm a, my heritage is a convict or, you know, my family is mostly Scottish or my family is mostly Irish and trying to take some sort of cultural factor from that I think that's analogous to uh, turning back to our scholarship of the Indo-Europeans I don't know well actually actually, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this because as we were walking up Mount Kosciuszko um, we were greeted many times by wonderful vistas which reminded me in a sense of sort of you know Step land, sort of open shrub and grassland. Now it's a bit steeper and a bit rockier, perhaps, but it had sort of that sort of imagery to me. Mm. And I would think, even me, you know, who's, you know, I've 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 ridden horses, but it's it was never a huge part of my life. Um, thinks of thinks of myself. Oh, like I've got some Indo. I've I've I'm an, I'm of Indo-European heritage. I'm a horse riding person in a sense. Like, I've got that as a people behind me, and mm. I think like. I, I should be out there on those steps on horseback. And and there's something there's something very strange about how gripping that can be. And it's something you encounter, for example, with geneticists. Um, I, I've, I'm, let's say I'm formally trained in linguistics and archaeology, 
my interest in, in genetics is budding, and I'm not formally trained in it yet, but I've, I've listened to many interviews and read some of the scholarship of these geneticists. And here's the thing, a lot of, a lot of them will, you know, make the assertion, uh, sort of as an offhand comment frequently, that, you know, all of this historical stuff is interesting. It's, it's interesting what this can tell us. It's interesting to understand both at a, you know, societal and scientific level, but also on a personal level. It's interesting to know where you come from. But what's really important about the genetic evidence is how it can help us, you know, treat future diseases. And I don't want to discount that, of course, but I find it interesting that all of those individuals who make that assertion have almost universally, when they've had their own genetic research done, looked at their ancestry. Yeah. It's sort of, see what, like, look not only at what they say, but what they do. Like, there is something so gripping in yeah, understanding something so... Yeah, people donate, you know, or, or, or volunteer their genetic material to be read for scientific purposes, but they don't treat it like they're dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. No. They do want to know, you know, people do want to know, oh, well, where am I from? And, sorry, did you want to... No, 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 go, keep going, please. I was going to say, one more, I think, important tie to how we can understand this in the terms of where we're going in this year ahead in the magazine and through our project of trying to understand the Grail Quest is through this word that we brought up um, thanks to our friend Herodotus and, and, in, and in terms of the science as well, which is inquiry. Mm. Inquiry. Yes. Uh, so Herodotus, uh, you know, famously begins, this is the display of my inquiries into these matters, right? In, in the beginning of his, his, uh, his history. And we, we categorize the scientific endeavor as one of inquiry as well. So scientific inquiry, right? Uh, as, as though it was, um, it, it made sense to what that meant. But it's an interesting word uh, insofar as it implies what we're doing is putting forward the right question and expecting an appropriate answer, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's almost a metaphor when you come to science um, because in science, unless you're, let's say, doing psychology, you can't necessarily directly put a question to your, your, field, of sub, your, your field of study. You can't ask the, the molecules that you study as a physicist or a chemist their composition in a direct human way. But we use inquiry as, an, as, an, as a metaphor there, or we expand its meaning into trying to understand the fundamentals of something. Yes. And yeah. through understanding those fundamentals, we can, for example, treat disease better. We can understand our place in the world better. And, and, and treating disease better is also understanding our place in the world better as much as telling our own history is, of course. Of course. Um, but where I find this is interesting insofar as we look to the theme of the Grail quest is obviously when we use the word Grail, we tend to mean some sort of prized artifact that heals, right? That restores, that mm. makes things right. One of the big themes in the Grail story is that from about the first few pages onwards, the land that our heroes travel through is described as more or less being put to waste. Mm. And that later is deepened by the hero, Percival, in the original Grail story, that wasteland is made worse by his failure, of all things, to conduct a proper inquiry. Mm. And so this is something that we're going to go very deeply into uh, in this coming issue. And we look at three works, not just Parzival, the original Grail story, but also the stories of uh, Oedipus Rex, 
uh, and Moby Dick, uh, which we're uniting under the, the banner of Grail Quest, and we will we will justify that. <laughs> um, but part of the way we are looking at this is through the question of inquiry. There's a crucial moment that happens in, in Percival, or Parzival, by Chrétien de Troyes, uh, and, it, and it happens again in Oedipus and, and Moby Dick as well, where the, the Grail Seeker, who is the protagonist, let's say, of that story, has to make an inquiry. And the success or failure, or the way that they conduct themselves within that context, will either spell success or damnation for them, or, or if not damnation, then at least maybe catastrophe as they progress. And so, it's a good thing, it's a thoroughly good thing uh, for humans to carry out inquiry. Indeed. Um, this is why we, we praise scientists as much as we praise good storytellers. Um, because as we covered in our last issue, for example, someone like Dostoevsky can provide us thoughtful and inquiry into where we belong in this world as someone like Louis Pasteur. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so both are, both are useful, and beyond useful actually, both benefit uh, humans as they move through the world. Um, so we come to this, this modern context, right, that we mentioned of, of trying to find a place and trying to find a story. And we use now these tools of inquiry like Ancestry.com, Genetics, we, we look at maybe some people, like I do this quite a lot, I look at, um, I, I listen to dialect um, the dialect researchers mm, yes. uh, and see how they identify my own dialect and the dialects across the world and the accents across the world, how they might shift over time and I find that interesting because it tells me a little bit about where I stand in relation to my parents, my grandparents and then the places in which I once came from, you know, England and Scotland etc. Um, and this is all part of my own, you know, private inquiry into into the world around me yeah, and it's a beautiful thing about the internet age of all the terrible things that the internet brought. One of the beautiful things it enables us all to make these own inquiries, like we're own mini Herodotuses, <laughs> Herodotoi, 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 uh, out there in the world. Uh, because um, while previously, while we might look back on the ancients and say, well, they just seem to tell a lot of stories about omens and portents and gods and heroes, right? I think we need to understand that what we do uh, with uh, our desire to understand ourselves and the world around us in terms of social sciences, genetic sciences, physical sciences, uh, and also our desire to tell stories um, is connected to this tradition of inquiry that stretches back and... Well, we've talked about the Indo-Europeans. How long ago was that, the Proto-Indo-European? Yeah, we never really did define a date for that, did we? Um, they are the late Neolithic period, so anywhere between 6,000 and 4,000 BC. Okay, so we're looking at as is, long is, as 8,000 years yeah, ago. Is their origin, and then, you know, some of their migrations occur as late as 2,500 to 1,700 BC. Well, so. and so, so as far back as eight thousand years ago, which isn't even the beginning of the human story in general, but this is just a, this is just like a, a sliver of a story that we can identify and tell and connect to us today. 
And that's what the endeavor is. I think that's what the endeavor, hopefully, of our magazine in general is, of the incidental encyclical. Indeed. And I think that's why, you know, at the outset, we've always wanted to include a, a work of writing from the ancient and from the medieval and from the modern periods. Um, and revolve it around a theme is because um, whether that work be one of philosophy, theology, history, literature itself, um, I mean, maybe even one day we'll cover a scientific treatise like some Darwin or something. There's no, there's no reason not to. Exactly. Um, because uh, the asking the right questions is always there in our stories is a key moment um, that can define and make and break a hero or a protagonist. Exactly. that's why I'm so excited to go through the Grail quest is because that's a, the, such an explicit moment within that story is will the hero when the moment when, the, when it is needed in that moment ask the right question or will they not? Exactly. Will they, you know, because it's, it's partially also, it's that, you know, it's that attention to, it's, it's, the, it's the attention to identifying what is most important as well. Yes. In that sort of, you know, understanding that this this is a crucial moment. This is a, you know, maybe this takes it too far, but this is there's a term in, in a Greek term, which was very commonly referred to in scholarship, is that kairos. A kairos, yeah, opportune time. An opportune time. And it's like this is a, a moment of importance, of, of weight, where, you know, the correct decision or the correct inquiry yeah. will shift, you know, an entire path of fate. Yeah. Yes. So, um, this has been a strange kairos on the drive <laughs> to record this. Strange opportunity. Um, but I think it's been really profitable. And it's just, it's, I'm glad we've had this discussion because, you know, within the context of a, most of our discussions, we're just talking about a work of literature and trying to unpack it a little bit. Indeed. Um, this is the first time that we've had the pleasure of hearing a lot from your area of specialty, Levi. Yeah. I don't know if everyone knows this, but Levi is, is, has finished his master's um, as of the previous year. And so all of his, his uh, efforts into linguistics and archaeology and uh, his area of study, while they don't always come to the forefront uh, in our discussions, uh, I'm so glad we've had this, this Kairos to, uh, yeah, bring some insights further the field of our inquiry, the scope of our inquiry. Absolutely. This has certainly been the most uh, academic discussion I think we've yeah. had in a sense. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. It's sort of, you know, when we, when you think of the classics, there's, there's generally you think of three, there's three sort of defining features of classics: it's the history, literature, and philosophy. And we cover lots of literature, and we've covered quite a bit of philosophy as well. And those two can be very hard to disentangle. We haven't looked at too much history in a sense. And that's no, the, we started with the Anabasis, but we haven't gone a lot, a lot beyond that. Exactly. But um, this has very much been a, a history-forward discussion. Yeah, which is ironic given that like history is both our specialty. We don't, <laughs> we don't cover it enough. But uh, yeah, well, maybe more of it to come in this year. I think maybe uh, come issue two, we'll have some uh, interesting works of historical writing to consider. Oh yes, oh yes, I, uh, I'm I'm excited for that for that opportunity to discuss uh, these sorts of topics further. Yeah, well. 
Um, we thank you for those who stuck around through some of the choppy aspects of the discussion. Uh, and apologies the audio quality. Um, our, our tech wizard Tom uh, has provided these lovely microphones, and I'm sure they'll be brilliant, but we are driving to a very uh, turbulent <laughs> highway. So if there has been any any uh, disruption there, we, we apologize. But uh, this will be a strange and impromptu first discussion for the year. Uh, we hope that when you hear it, you'll start hearing some more of the regular stuff soon. But if you did enjoy this one, and would like more discussions hearing from Levi's area of expertise, um, exploring areas that we don't necessarily cover when we're looking at the classics, let us know. And we'll, make, we'll produce more of this kind of uh, material. Exactly. You're always welcome to join us. Uh, we have a Discord channel. We have plenty of ways you can reach out and get in contact. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening, if you have stuck around this long. And uh, you'll hear more from us in the future.